Well, let me now invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 8 through 12, which is Peter's summary section for what he's been dealing with from chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 8, or verse 7, I should say. So 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'll start reading from the inspired Word of God, starting in verse 8. Peter writes, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For, and now he's quoting from the Psalms, specifically Psalm 34, the one who desires life and to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And may God bless the reading of His Word. So in this section, what Peter is doing is laying out the character of God's people, particularly in light of them living in a hostile and an unbelieving world, or whenever there is a potential for conflict that comes into their life. As exiles in the world, we desire to lead a peaceful and a quiet life with all godliness and dignity. That's what we're supposed to pray for in 1 Timothy 2. But that's not often our experience. So Peter's readers are these churches scattered out throughout modern day Turkey. And they're living in the Roman Empire. And they are experiencing a certain level of persecution and suffering. And so Peter is exhorting them and focusing on how they should respond in a godly way to help silence the critics. And these qualities are certainly still important for us to live by today. As we begin to look at this list, he starts out in verse 8, and he's primarily talking to believers in their relationship with one another. He says, to sum up all of you, that is all of you believers, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. So again, he's uh, primarily addressing how they should relate to one another within the church. These characteristics are not chosen at random, but they're designed to kind of smooth the rocky roads to subdue conflict and promote peace. And in essence, all these qualities are very Christ-like, as we'll see as we look through these. 
And they reflect really the heart of Christ for how we should uh, respond to one another. The first word he puts in verse 8 is harmonious. And this word literally has the idea of being like-minded or united in spirit, just to be harmonious. Not that we agree on every point or jot and tittle of doctrine or anything else. That's not really what he has in mind. But that we should not promote division or dissension within the church. Be harmonious. The idea would be kind of like a choir or a symphony that's all playing off the same music and all the, the melodies, even though they're, they would be different. You have the, the soprano, the alto, the tenor, the bass. But they all blend and they produce a, a beautiful harmony. It would be more the idea of what he's exhorting them to. Of course, this doesn't mean that you overlook false doctrine or false gospels or neglect church discipline when it's needed. But in general, he's dealing with just all the different issues that may come up within a church, secondary issues, which believers may vary and which may cause conflict. Just think of the churches back then with the Jews and the Gentiles and all the differences between those two different groups of believers, all the cultural differences, the background differences that they had. So they need to learn to live in harmony with one another. And this is a challenge because we're all still sinners. Conflicts can arise. It's kind of like the poem that says, To dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be the glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. And sometimes we're all tested with this, but Peter is exhorting us to strive to live in harmony with one another. The second word he mentions is being sympathetic. To be sympathetic means you share the feelings of others, whether joyful or sorrowful. This enables us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. A sympathetic person is able to enter into the sorrows of others in a way that communicates their love and concern for them. Christ is really the model in this, as we read already in Hebrews chapter 4. The author says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, two negatives make a positive. So he's saying, We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. One who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So Christ is in many ways the, the model for showing sympathy. So we're to be sympathetic towards each other. The next word he refers to as being brotherly or having brotherly love is really the idea of Philadelphia. Brotherly love is the word that Peter actually uses. And this is an essential virtue in the Christian life. Remember, John, Jesus said this. John wrote it down in John 13. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 1 Corinthians 13 is loaded with descriptions of love. We know that the second most important commandment in the Bible is to love your neighbor as yourself. So this is a, a very important quality that we should have. 
Love is really the bond of the brotherhood. It's a love and affection expressed to others within the family of faith. This love is actually also a sign that we have passed out of death into life. Again, John writes in 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. So it's a very important quality that we should have. Later on, Peter, Peter will write in 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, it covers sin. It doesn't broadcast it. So love covers a multitude of sin. Now again, Peter isn't saying you overlook all sin. That's why we have church discipline. But every believer needs a lot of grace in dealing with their brothers and sisters in Christ. And all believers are members of the same family, the same family of faith. We'll spend eternity together Again, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to love one another. And that's what he's emphasizing there. The next one he brings up is being kind-hearted. Or your translation may have compassionate. To show compassion to those in pain or to those in trouble. It expresses a warmth and a tender attitude towards those that are suffering. It's a caring sensitivity towards the needs of others where you try to minister to them and you show compassion to them. The Good Samaritan is a great example of showing compassion. Because here you have the Samaritan showing compassion to that injured Jew where the scribe and the priest would not do it. But the Samaritan would. At his own expense, he cared for this guy. He showed compassion to this guy. And again, it's interesting that in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this verb is used many times of Jesus showing compassion either to the crowd in general, or to the sick or the sinful. So Christ is full of compassion towards others. And we're to show mercy to one another because we have received mercy from God in the forgiveness of our sins. And our God is a God full of compassion. And the opposite of compassion is being hard-hearted. The last one in verse 8 that he mentions is being humble in spirit and mind. This reflects the inner attitude of those who are voluntarily submissive to those in authority over them. That's been a big issue that Peter has been dealing with in this section of his letter. Again, it's the opposite of a haughty or an arrogant mind. So in effect, what Peter is exhorting them is don't let pride swell up in your hearts like it did with Lucifer in heaven or Adam and Eve in the garden or Uzziah, the king of Judah on his throne who was struck with leprosy or Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon that boasted, and look at Babylon that I've made and God cursed him, made him like a cow for seven years. No, be humble in spirit, be humble in mind. Pride is kind of a pandemic virus 
in our fallen nature. And we must struggle to subdue it with the, with the help and grace of the Holy Spirit regularly within our lives. Again, the great example of humility is Jesus Christ Himself. Again, the great passage in Philippians 2. Paul exhorts the Philippians, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. So that should be our attitude. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on in Philippians 2 verse 6, referring to Christ, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. Now, He never stopped being God. He was fully God. He possessed all of the attributes, the divine glory and authority of God the Father equally. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all equally share in all of that. And yet, it was the Son of God in the covenant of redemption that volunteered to come down and take on a second nature, a human nature, which would enable Him to become the humble servant so He could be our Savior. And so he goes on to write, He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here the Lord Jesus again is our example of being humble because He left His throne of glory and took on a second human nature and through the incarnation submitted Himself to the Father. Jesus emphasized this in other places. In Matthew 11, He says, Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And He showed His humility, a servant's heart, and even washing the disciples' feet. You remember that in John 13. Now what's interesting is that humility was scorned in the Greco-Roman world. And we can see how the world's values are really upside down compared with the values of God's kingdom. Because in Christ's kingdom, to be great means to be a servant. If you want to be master, well that's according to the world system. If you want to be great in Christ's kingdom, then you come and serve others with a humble heart. So humility may be mocked by the world, but it's praised by God in His kingdom. And then from verse 8, Peter then goes into verse 9, where now he's addressing how to respond when there is conflict, either from the outside world or even, sadly, sometimes from within the church. How believers are to relate to those who inflict evil upon them. And notice what he says in verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. So he says, don't return evil for evil. Don't return insult for insult. And actually, he's already referred earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, that this describes Christ again. 
who although he was reviled, did not revile in return. So he again becomes our pattern. See, our flesh wants to return evil for evil. At least as much as we receive it, we want to give it back. It's kind of like a tennis match where someone serves up a hot volley at your direction with some insult going your way. And our, our natural response is to take our racket and slam it back at them. And then they hit one back at us and we slam it back at them. And Peter is saying, don't return evil for evil. You're not in a tennis match. Respond with kindness. Respond with a blessing. And this is something again that's emphasized in other places in Scripture. Uh, next slide, if you could advance that, please. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 17. Thank you. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And again, Paul tells the Thessalonian church that let no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Uh, let's see. Okay. Romans twelve twenty one is another great one. Overcome evil with good. This is where the blessing comes in. Instead of returning evil for evil, how do we respond? Return with a blessing. Bless them. And again, Paul says, Romans 12.21, overcome evil with good. 1 Corinthians 4.12, when we're reviled, he says, well, we bless. So when people revile us, we don't respond by reviling them. We bless them. And of course, Jesus reminds us, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So we're to give a blessing. Part of that, the way that we can bless those who are doing evil or insulting us is by praying for them. That's one of the many ways we can respond in blessing those people. We're to pray for God to show His mercy, excuse me, His grace, His favor to those who mistreat us. Remember, that's what Stephen did. When Stephen was being stoned, how did he respond to those who were killing him? Stoning him to death. Well, the book of Acts tells us that he prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And remember, in that prayer, that there was a young man among that group that was stoning him, a young man that all the other people came and laid their cloaks down at his feet. And remember what his name was. That was Saul. And God in His mercy answered that prayer of Stephen and later on saved Saul. And he became the great apostle Paul. So basically what we're being told here is that we are to give a blessing when we're reviled or when we are insulted or when someone does evil towards us. In other words, we don't get even by retaliating, we get even by blessing them in God's eyes. 
And we trust God and His justice and His goodness in all of our circumstances. But why is it that we're to return with a blessing when an insult comes our way? Well, Peter says, again in verse 9, for you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. In other words, because we are God's children and will inherit this incredible glory waiting for us in heaven that Peter has already talked about in chapter 1, because we are heirs of this incredible inheritance, we should have the grace to respond in blessing to those who are treating us with evil motives. Those who will inherit the blessing of glory to come should abound in being a blessing now to others praying that God would save them. And then in verses 10 through 12, Peter now draws from Psalm 34 to get his biblical support uh, for these uh, exhortations that he's giving. And notice what he says in verse 10. The one who desires life and to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. So notice what he begins by saying. Those who desire life. Now your Bible may translate this a little differently. One who desires life to love and see good days. So what, what's he talking about here? Well, this is, this is not Peter's version of Joel Osteen's Your Best Life Now. That's not what he has in mind. Uh, obviously, this is an ancient recipe from God for a happy life. But when he says to desire life, to love and see good days, what's the nature of those good days? Well, in Psalm 34, it doesn't mean that you're going to live a life where everything goes your way and you're always over, over flooded with, with blessings and you don't have any problems or trials or difficulties. That's not what he's talking about at all. In fact, in Psalm 34, that Peter is quoting, the author speaks of having fears and, and troubles, and he says that many afflictions come to the righteous, and he even mentions having a broken heart. And yet, in the context of all of that, we can still love life and see good days. So what's he talking about? Well, it's ultimately the, the kind of good life that comes from trusting God. Even when we're having a bad day, we can have a good day when we strive to live a life that pleases God. That can be a good life. Those are good days. In other words, things don't have to be going outwardly well for you to have a good day. You can have a bad hair day, but in, in, in the providence of God, if you're looking to God, trusting in His goodness, His wisdom, His love for you, knowing that He works all things together for good in your life, even your trials cannot rob you from having a good day, of finding joy and peace in God because of His providence, because of His sovereignty over all things in your life. And Peter wants us to know by quoting this, that his readers, going through outward trials and afflictions, could still have a rich and abundant spiritual life regardless of what they're going through outwardly. And the key to this in this psalm 
is that you can see good days which are not necessarily tied to being wealthy and healthy, but you can see good days as you focus on moral goodness that pleases God. So that's what his focus is. To live in the fear of the Lord. Again, to know that God is in control. He's in control of everything that touches your life. And He's going to work it for good. So in the book of Acts, for example, you have Paul and Silas out preaching the Gospel and they were arrested and they were flogged. Their backs were bleeding. They were thrown into a prison. Their feet were put in stocks. And yet they were having a good day. Because you know how they responded? By singing hymns of praise to God. See, they're having a good day in the midst of outwardly a very bad day. And ultimately, I think that's what Peter is encouraging his readers that this is there for you as you focus your life in going in a God-centered direction. So how does he describe that? Well, again in verse 10, he begins by saying, to desire life, to love and see good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. So controlling the tongue is the first thing. Now, it's interesting, many of our conflicts are due to wrong words spoken in a wrong spirit. And the tongue is really kind of a cesspool of evil <laughs> in so many ways. Psalm 141 verse 3, Psalmist says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Because he knew the tendency of our words. Proverbs say that life and death are in the power of a tongue. It says that, that the tongue is like the, the thrust of a sword where you just jab someone and twist it. That's what the tongue can do to someone. Proverbs also describes the tongue as a scorching fire. It's like spewing napalm over, over other people. That's what the tongue can do. James says that tongue is a small fire that can set a great forest aflame. The world of iniquity that defiles the entire body and sets it on fire with the fire of hell. He says the tongue is untamable and is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. We just we strike at people like a serpent. We bless God and then we turn around and curse men. That's how fickle the tongue is. And Peter says, abstain from that kind of speech. He speaks of evil, the evil tongue, which could refer to gossip, bragging, slander, rudeness, telling lies. And the Lord hates a lying tongue. Remember Proverbs 6. He also speaks of deceitful speech, using deceptive words to profit personally. And Jesus says, you know, what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. It's an indication of the heart. And that's why Satan is called the father of lies. Because what comes out of his mouth, figuratively speaking, is, comes from his heart. And why the word devil means slanderer. Someone who slanders other people. So he says, 
first off, to control your tongue. Next, he says, turn away from evil and do good. Because grace should produce action in our life. First, we turn away from evil, run from it, get away from it. But then we do good. So there's a negative and a positive. The good means that we engage the world. We seek to reverse evil. We try to do good to our, our, our neighbor, our people at work, other people. We try to do good to all people. Uh, three times in this letter, Peter will exhort his readers to do good in the face of suffering. Again, to return evil with good. Something very important for us to pursue. So that the good life is linked to doing good. Paul says in Galatians 6, Do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of God. So turn away from evil and do good. And then he adds to that in verse 11, We must seek peace and pursue it. In other words, aggressively search for peace and harmonious relations which promote blessings on other people. When peace is elusive, which oftentimes it is, then we must chase it down. We must hunt for it, pursue it, run after it. Again, not peace at any cost or peace at the expense of truth. That's not what he's that's not the peace he's talking about. I mean Christ was the one who turned over the money changers tables and rebuked the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And our gospel is certainly hated by the world. But nevertheless, in the context of generally living out our lives, we must seek peace and pursue it. Don't just seek it, but chase it down. Again, Christ is the premier peacemaker. He's the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9.6. He brings a kingdom of peace in Romans 14. There's different kinds of peace in the Bible. Uh, There's a peace with God that we have when we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. That's when we're reconciled with God. We were formerly enemies. Now we're friends because of the blood of Christ and faith in that sacrifice of our Lord for our sins. There's also a peace of God which the Holy Spirit can give us in our hearts in times of troubles and trials and turmoil in our life that we can have that inner peace living in the eye of the hurricane. That kind of something that we can experience. But Peter probably has peace in our relations with other people primarily in view here. And this is one of the great uh, virtues of the kingdom of God. Christ said in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. He wants us to be peacemakers when we can. Colossians 3, 5, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Ephesians 4, 3, Paul exhorts the church to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Again, you can see how important that is. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul exhorts them, may the Lord of peace Himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. 
In Hebrews 12.14, again just showing the importance of this, the author says, pursue peace with all men. In Romans 12.18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Sometimes you can't achieve that peace. But strive after it. Pursue it. So Peter begins with harmony. We're to be harmonious. And he ends with peace. To guide the church in its many experiences. And then in verse 12, Peter quotes the final verse that he has in mind from Psalm 34. And he says, this is really just giving God's response to both the righteous and the wicked as an encouragement to the church. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears attend to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he encourages the believers to respond in this godly way because the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Now the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. Uh, Proverbs 15 verse 3 says, "...the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good." But that's not the kind of eye of the Lord that the the psalmist is referring to. Not the eyes of God's omniscience. But rather the eyes of His favor. The eyes of His love, His compassion, His blessing. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. So when you respond in a righteous and a godly way, in the midst of all these issues out there, then the eyes of the Lord are towards you. He delights in that. He will bless you for it. And then he says in the ears, his ears attend to our prayer. Meaning that it just speaks to the Lord's opening his ears to our cries, our needs. He hears. He's our Father. He'll give us what we need. But then notice by contrast, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The face of the Lord. His eyes, His ears are toward the righteous, but His face is toward the wicked. And that speaks of His personal presence intensely watching them with anger, ready to judge them. Now the next verse in this psalm that Peter does not quote says this, it's the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And it speaks a word of judgment against them. And I don't know why Peter stopped the quotation where he did. Maybe he's holding out a hope for repentance. Don't know. But that's certainly where the direction of the psalm is going. And you can certainly see it here. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So his encouragement for the saints is that, look, you live in a, in a world that hates you. You'll experience conflicts from all directions. But you respond in a godly way. A humble way. You respond with loving, peaceful spirit 
towards those outside and inside the church. And by doing so, you will magnify your witness to the world and you'll also promote blessings within the church if you respond in that way. So may God help us to learn from Peter's inspired advice as we deal with a world around us, enemies around us, conflicts around us, and give us the heart of Christ to respond in a way that pleases the Lord. So may God help us to do that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do want to thank You again for the Word of God and how it teaches us, Lord, to respond in times of difficulties, times of suffering and afflictions, times of conflict, times of persecution. And so, Lord, we can look to Your Son, Jesus Christ. We can see His grace, His mercy. And know, Lord, that all sins will from those who are not believers, will one day be judged. And that, Lord, we don't have to carry out our own revenge, but we can leave that into Your hands for Your timing and for Your glory. So, Lord, give us that humility. Give us that love. Give us that sense of peace, Lord, that Your name might be glorified and uplifted within our church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.